Space and time may have a structure as intricate as the fauna of a rich ecosystem, but on a scale far larger than the horizon of our observations. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. I tell you what, Matt, happy birthday to Martin John Reese. Yes. I think he's going to be 76. So he, and that will be tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. Oh, or today if you're listening birthday. on Saturday. Yeah. Good, Matt. Good, <laughs> or yesterday good. if you're listening on Sunday. S- this is this is podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> or last year if you're listening next year. Uh, okay, stop. Or today if you're listening in two years' time. Oh. No, let's stop. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, Martin John Reese. What's Baron Reese. Baron Reese of Ludlow. O-M-F-R-S-F-R-N-G. Yes. When you hear the word Baron, mm. does it make you think of what it makes me think of? What, as in like a, a woman that? Is childless. No, um, Flash Gordon. No, I always think of Baron Greenback from Danger Mouse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you're a bit older than me, so... I sort of remember Danger Mouse, but it was just on the cusp. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Let me tell you a story. I I, I, um, saw Martin Rees last year because I went to go and see Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking... Got a little bit poorly, so didn't turn up, and Martin Rees stepped into his shoes. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but yes, Martin Rees, British cosmologist and astrophysicist, and the president of the Royal Society between 2005 and 2010, and is the master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and is the astronomer royal. I would say, Matt, that's pretty esteemed. Yeah, in terms of astronomy, Martin Rees is out there. And he's got lots and lots of really cool quotes. Well, I think you, I think you picked a good one. Bloody well read as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really well read. I, I, I liked. It. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should do voiceovers. <laughs> you should do. Vo- you should do voiceovers or minimum. I think I you might. Should, you should do a podcast. Well, oh, hang, I, wait. Hang on a second. Um, so, Matt, what, what's, what else has been going on? Hit me. Yesterday we had mm. the summer solstice. Were you one of these stoners down at um, Stonehenge? Smoking your wacky backy, watching the sunrise, trying to get it through some weird portal in the stone. Matt, what, what are Druid, what, what do druids believe? I, I don't know what they believe, but definitely Stonehenge lines up to the solstices. So mm. obviously the druid beliefs have been lost in the mists of time, uh, mm. and and kind of you know over the years, silly little things have stepped in. But, you know, there's but, no two ways about it. People really did believe in astrology until quite but recently. boy, could they move a rock to align it with the sun? They could, they could couldn't they? I love going down well, the A303 and seeing Stonehenge. Now, did the Druids move those? Did they align the rocks at Stonehenge? Or were they already there and they just that was their place of worship? I just don't know enough about it, Matt. Ooh, yeah. I mean, it, it's absolutely ancient. There's been a site there for a very, very long time. Well, listeners, if you know the history, please uh, please enlighten us. Yeah, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. So, of course, what the summer solstice means is that right at this moment, the Earth is tilted. Well, this pole is tilted as much as it possibly could towards the sun. So, twenty three point four four degrees tilted towards the sun, and therefore, 
you know, we, we're getting the most amount of sun. It's not, it's not necessarily. It, it is the longest day, the the summer solstice, but mm. it doesn't necessarily mean that the sun rose at the earliest part of the day or set at the latest part of the day. That's actually a little bit more complicated. <laughs> mm. It is uh, complicated. Yes. Yeah, the way that the Earth goes around the sun <clears throat> is is quite complicated because we're slightly elliptical in in our orbit, so that we mm. speed up and slow down. That's very true. It's quite interesting. Uh, to, you know, to to really nail down the math is actually pretty difficult, and I and I really really wonder how the flat Earthers cope with the maths of this particular conundrum i don't i don't think they can cope with much matt <laughs> don't, don't throw don't throw sun math at them as well no so no. that's uh, it's obviously it holds a lot of importance all around the world but there's some uh, there's a few modern ones which i thought were quite funny like international surfing day <laughs> an international right. an international yoga day was this all yesterday yeah, all yesterday. And if you were in Canada, you would have you would have celebrated National Aboriginal Day. Well, Matt, forget that. You know what it also was? International Selfie Day. Was it yesterday? Yeah, apparently. That's what no. I saw when I logged onto Twitter. I wonder if that's got anything to do with the summer solstice. But it's also the yeah. one that you you would like is uh, the Fête de la Musique, which is oh. World World Music Day. Now that's something I can get behind. Yeah, so that's been going on since 1982. 120 countries get involved. And you're supposed to op- open up your neighbourhoods and public spaces and parks and play some music. Well, please, can you do that? I know it's we've missed it by a day, but guys, open up your windows. Blast out a bit of Phil Collins or whatever it is you're listening to. <laughs> um, there is one birthday that's actually today, and that is of Yuri Petrovich Art Yukin, mm. who is a uh, Russian cosmonaut and engineer who made a single flight into space on Soyuz 14 back in 1974. Beautiful. Happy birthday, Yuri. Well, he, d- he did die in 1998, but, but happy birthday. Oh, I know. Just, just, you know, posthumous. Posthumous, is that right? Can you have mm, a posthumous birthday? Might, yeah, it might not be right. So I'll tell you what's been funny this week of course. Go on. Is Trump. Oh, the Space Force. Space Force. Oh, my God. There was a third meeting of the Space Council that was supposed to be signing a document that was really all the document was about was about this, um, you know, space debris and and how to clean it up. You know, space traffic management. These mega constellations are only going to happen if if America sort out their space traffic management. So that's what that was all about. But yeah, he then went on to do some really weird things like talk about Space Force. Separate but equal. That was what I liked. It's going to be something so important. General Dunford. (laughs) Remember John Dunford? I do. I I don't reckon he's, he's not General Dunford now, is he? Oh, I, I, I hope he is, but I, I don't think he is. <laughs> I would be worried. <laughs> I would be very worried. <laughs> um, yeah, but he also, other than the Space Force stuff, he also seemed to have a swipe at uh, ULA, the United Launch Alliance, and and that's with Marilyn Hewson, uh, who's the chief executive of Lockheed, and Dennis Moylenberg, who's the who's her counterpart at Boeing. Mm. Um, 
sitting in the audience and he's kind of having a go at them and sort of saying, oh, yeah, their prices are going up even though they've joined forces. We need them to separate out. And it's like, whoa. So uh, that, must have been, that must have been like a bit of a sweaty moment for those two. Um, I shall be talking about all this with David Baker next week. So um, I, it'd be really interesting to see what his take on all that was. But it's kind of maybe they're going to spin United Launch Alliance out of Boeing and Lockheed so that Tory Bruno, who is a who is a bit of a Twitter legend, by the way, he was tweeting all the way through his daughter's wedding and, and doing like a countdown <laughs> last week. Yeah, it was oh, really... but she was happy. <laughs> yeah. Dad, get off Twitter. I'm getting married. Can I encourage our wonderful American listeners to just remind everyone they know to vote in November, please. I mean, it, it's funny to a certain extent, but I'm getting really tired of this. What's the vote in, what's the vote in November? Well, it's the mid-elections, isn't it? Oh, uh, okay. Let's just try and get this massive, giant orange... F- <laughs> out of office yeah yeah um, yeah yeah (laughs) sorry about that um uh, every every time his name gets mentioned i just start to sweat internally Um, matt moving on to the esa council yes so there's been quite a few things going on this week with the esa council yeah so uh, the council have decided that they're going to press ahead with ariane six and endorse the start from the transition of Ariane 5 to Ariane 6. Yeah. So, yes, uh, they basically said, yes, we're going to go ahead and we're going to... All the participating states that are involved with Ariane 6, which isn't Britain, mm. of course, are pushing forward. So it's going to be... Here, Euro- here. So it's going to be Europe's next generation launcher. And it's got to be cheaper than Ariane 5. And there's basically two models, one with two strap-on boosters and one with four. Nice. And it's these strap-on boosters that are actually quite an important part of the rocket. So the P120C will be, I believe, the largest solid propellant motor ever built. Oof. So it is so so that has got an awful lot of power. So but it's also going to be used in the new Vega C uh launcher, which is apparently going to be launching next year. So that's another thing that they've been discussing is the Vega C. So the Vega C increases the Vega from 1.5 tons to 2.2 tons. And there's loads of there's loads of things in that as well where um they've been using lots of modern technology like the way that they make the fairings which is called out of autoclave. So they're like these carbon massive carbon fiber shells that are cast in ovens rather than an autoclave. Matt, do you remember Vega from Street Fighter 2? Yes, I do, yes. The Spanish baddie with it, with his long Logan-type <laughs> knives. Yeah, you, I do. You're aware of this guy? I am very aware well, of him. Every time you mention Vega, yeah. I, I picture myself 15 years old with Play. my mate Sam uh, playing constantly from the moment we got up till the moment we went to bed playing Street Fighter 2. And, and he was a particularly tough baddie to get past. Anyway, carry on. Well, for me, Vega is the is one of the stars in the summer triangle, and it's it's, it's funny, isn't it? How, it's, how to, I navigate the to, sky? Yeah, it's one of my favourite stars because it's got quite a few double stars all around it. It's 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 a very nice one to look at through, even binoculars. It's good. Two so, meanings, one word. Lots of meanings, Vega. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. 
So Ariane 6 and Vegasy very much on the march to seeing a new launch very soon. And mm. we shall, we'll have a very exciting report next week on all of this, of course. It's very, very exciting. Uh, and we should also stay with Europe as well, because lots of things seem to be happening in, in that ESA Council that was on the 13th of June 2018 in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've also been talking about the European Exploration Envelope Programme, or E3P, which is about the three exploration de- destinations, Earth, Moon, and Mars. Ooh. So it's all about yeah building the infrastructure for all of that. So from now on, they're going to start negotiating agreements covering um, contributions to the Lunar Gateway. Ah, yes. Including transportation infrastructure. Uh, negotiating agreements covering European contributions to an international Mars sample return mission. Mm. Uh, examining scenarios and mission concepts for lunar exploration and with the aim of finalising the agreements in time for their eventual approval at the Ministerial Council in 2019. So that's one to watch, isn't it? That's a lot of stuff going on there. Matt, whenever you say stuff like Lunar Gateway, Mm. that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Well, it's funny because Robert Zubrin, last week's guest, I believe refers to the Lunar Gateway as a sort of uh, phone toll booth. He doesn't like it at mm. all. He thinks it's a complete... Really? Yeah, yeah, he's not a fan. Oh, Zoobs. Well, I, just, I don't know. I think there's arguments either way, isn't there? It's, it's there just... Is. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, David Parker, who's the Director of Human and Robotic Exploration at ESA, said, there's no doubt that the next decade is going to be exciting for space exploration. He's not wrong there. ESA and its member states are working hard to keep Europe at the heart of the journey of discovery. And fascination that lies ahead. It's so exciting. The most exciting mission, I think, at the moment, this week, is one that gets virtually no press at all, which is absolutely ridiculous, is JAXA's, Mm -hmm. the Japanese Space Agency's Hayabusa 2. Yeah, where is this print? I know it's it, it's really exciting. So it's it's really closing in now on Ryugu, the an asteroid, uh, and it's starting to take some really really decent pictures. I've put one in the notes, and uh, it looks like a it looks like a dice. Ryu is another um, Street Fighter Two character, also Matt. So we've come full circle. Is it really? Yeah. It, I wonder if Hayabusa is a <laughs> Street Fighter character. <laughs> It might just be. <laughs> so, but, yeah, it's expected to arrive on the 27th of June. Um, and when I say arrive, I think that means it's going to start like doing some station keeping when it gets to 20 kilometres away. So I think it's round about 40 kilometres away. So it's starting to get some really decent pictures. Uh, and it's approaching at 9 centimetres per second, which I think is quite cool, isn't it? Uh, the escape velocity from that uh, particular asteroid is uh, five centimetres a second. So um, uh, so it's, it's obviously coming in on a kind of, uh, what would you call it, a hyperbolic trajectory. I don't know. I'm not mm. really into orbital mechanics, but uh, it, it's coming in. So it needs to obviously do a bit of slowing down and, and be captured by the gravity. Uh, so that's going to be really cool, isn't it? It was launched in 2014, so it's taken a long time to get there, like three and a half Worth the wait, years. I reckon. Oh, my God, it's absolutely amazing. This, this, is, 
this is one of the coolest things ever. So it's it's been flying on its ion engine since uh, the 10th of January, um, which added 393 metres a second to the velocity. Uh, but it's it's used very little fuel because these ion engines are so efficient. But it's um, that's been switched off, so it's just drifting towards its target now. Um, the target's only a kilometre wide, this asteroid. Uh, but when it gets there, it's going to do some amazing things. It's got two um, landers called Minerva, both called Minerva 2. I think one's called Minerva 2-1 and the other one's called Minerva 2-2. Two, two. Minerva 2-2. Two, uh, two. Minerva 2-2. Two, two. Wow, okay. <laughs> You've got a nerve wearing that 2-2. Two, two. Um, oh, uh, uh, but, but on board both of those landers are rovers. I think one's got two and the other one's got one. So they're going to they're going these two little rovers are going to three little rovers are going to be roaming around on this asteroid and doing stuff. That is mad. Then it's going to fire a 2 kilogram lump of copper at the rock to create a massive crater so that they can take pictures of like fresh material. Okay. And then and then the actual uh, Hayabusa 2 is going to lower itself down and scrape some samples off the surface of the asteroid and fly back to Earth and deliver it back to Earth. Well, Matt, could that be the first asteroid mining, technically? <laughs> no, because they've actually done it before. So Hayabusa 1, despite all the massive problems that it had, oh. did mm. actually do it, but it, it, it got very, very little uh, back. Um, yeah. But... It's just, just going to be absolutely unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's killer. So that's All killer, no so, filler. So that's the so it'll be doing its scraping maneuver near the end of next year, December two thousand and nineteen, and then it will come into it'll come into our planet's atmosphere in twenty twenty, and then so we go sick. then we go and collect the capsule and have a whole new load of information. It's going to be absolutely brilliant and. Give a shout out to Hayabusa 2. What a fantastic... Big shout out. Keep your eyes on JAXA. Fantastic mission, that is. Um, staying over in that part of the world, we've got China. That I saw a brilliant blog on the Planetary Society uh, website by... No, I'm bound to pronounce this name wrong. Give it a shot, son. So Lu Yuanzhu did a uh, blog called How China's Lunar Relay Satellite arrived in its final orbit and it and it mm. gives a little story about how it flies out and gets into one of these halo orbits around the earth moon lagrange point which you know is my favorite oh. there was two micro satellites that followed the quijual relay satellite and mm. one one of them broke i mentioned that last last week and lost contact but the other one is being tracked by amateur radio operators and it's all working and the Saudi Arabians, I believe, are involved in helping to get images back from those. And it and one of them sent back this beautiful image of the moon and with the Earth in the background. Oh, cool that is! is that? So, I'm looking at it right now. That is stunning, isn't it? Yeah, Earthrise. And that's from a little microsatellite. You know, it's incredible what these things can do now. So, you know, it's not long now till we can do the interplanetary podcast microsatellite and get some really cool pictures like that imagine posting that on your facebook and going ah imagine that for, imagine that for international selfie day there's there's your mates oh yes Take that twitter are we actually in that picture we're not quite in that picture are we uh we well, might be i mean i can't see i can't we're, see England. We're, we're just in the we're in the dark side yeah 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 but, but everyone's Bad. everyone's in it 
Exactly. Everyone is in that picture. Oh, my gosh. Everyone you've ever known. Oh, I won't go into it. Um, I'll tell you what, Matt. Yeah. What a quote that is, A eh? Pale blue dot. Big shout out to... Uh, the Carl the Sagan. boy, Carl Sagan. <laughs> Absolutely. There's also, uh, this week, um, we've seen that just, re- just, I think yesterday, we saw the release of uh, Remove Debris, the, uh, the very, very mm. interesting satellite that Surrey Satellites helped build. Uh, yes. And uh, on Oleg Artemyev's uh, Twitter account, mm. he posted um, him videoing the removed debris satellite being released from the International Space Station. It is so cool. It looks exactly yeah, like... It, uh, it looks so brilliant. It looks so much better than the um, those videos about how it's going to work because it, it just looks... Mm. Well, it just looks hyper-real because it, it is, I suppose. Because it is. Simple. <laughs> it looks absolutely brilliant uh so well done everyone involved in that i'm really looking forward to the to the results of the removed debris it's the largest satellite ever deployed from the international space station god damn check it out please also there's something that's blown up in the universe and they don't know what it is oh so this is something something i picked up on the astronomer's telegram the atlas 18 qqn 8 at 2018 cow Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it's some, something's blown up. They don't know what it is, so they're looking into that. Watch this space, literally. Alan Bond, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, he was such such a lovely man. Uh, we had a, a, a nice glass of carver before we started. And, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, and basically, yeah, this, 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 this literally has turned into uh, a, a semi-autobiographical account of Alan Bond's life. And there's so many fantastic little snippets in there, uh, particularly ones about like nuclear propulsion and things like that. That are if you if you have a listen to this, it's it's there's so many really cool bits. I was really exciting editing it yesterday. Um, but if anyone's got any questions, Alan did invite us back again to uh, have a chat. So if you listen to this and any of these little bits like perk your interest, then do write in and give let us, us know. Let we'll us know and, and we'll follow it up and, and we'll have some brilliant questions to give Alan the next time. This is going to be a two-parter. It was a very long interview. He absolutely soldiered on. You'll hear that he's just basically... T- I'm just forcing him to talk loads and he's near the end of the first half. He's, he's, coughing, he's coughing a little bit because I'm working him so hard. But it's it's absolutely fascinating, and I uh, you know you can hear me laughing all the way through because I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. So uh, yeah, do you want to listen to it? Without further ado, let's hear it. A uh, good day. I'm joined by Alan Bond and Colin for a, a, a chat here at the British Interplanetary Society in Vauxhall. Hello, Alan. Hello. I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, yes, really, this is um, your chance to tell us a little bit about Alan Bond and your uh, adventures in space, I, I guess. Goodness. So you can take us from, from the beginning. Where, how, how did you get into... <laughs> how, did, how did it begin? Yeah, well, how did it begin? Uh, I've been interested in space since I can remember. Space has been always a part of my life. And, uh, but the, the, the place that actual space flight really began and everybody knows this story, back in 1953 with Dan Durr and the Eagle. And uh, up until that point in time, I'd really been very much interested in space as 
an astronomy issue. Uh, in 1959, when I first saw this, I should emphasise I was nine. <laughs> um, but uh, nonetheless, I, I did uh, understand fair bit about the uh, universe as much as we understood it in those days. Um, but all of a sudden, Dunder flew into my life and I realised that I didn't have to stay on the earth and sort of look at the skies through a telescope. Uh, we might actually be able to get out there and do it. Of course, I didn't appreciate just how difficult a task that was going to be. Mm. Dunder, it was easy. You know, he'd just pop out to the launching ramp with his, his crew, get in the uh, St Christopher and off to rescue the Nautilus and things like that. And it was all, it all looked very, very good. And I thought, yeah, this is what, this is what I want to do. But it was a long, long time after that. There was an awful lot to learn, of course. Um, by the time I got into my, uh, well, teens proper, 13, 14, the uh, local library had got me listed as a serious student and were getting all kinds of books for me in German and French and English on rocket propulsion. And uh, Any favourites from that era of rocket propulsion? Well, the one that eventually surfaced as the... Uh, sort of handbook, which absolutely everybody in rocket propulsion uses, of course, was Sutton's uh, rocket propulsion elements. And uh, that was mathematical, uh, very clear, uh, explained the gas dynamics and so on. And uh, my mathematics had been very good from an early age, so I, I could understand all that. Round about that time was when I went off to grammar school as well, which uh, was a sudden change in the sort of education that I was getting. Mm. So all of a sudden calculus came into my life and uh, uh, a lot of the things that I'd been struggling with to learn on my own, I've, I'd suddenly got somebody telling me. And that makes a world of difference, of course, uh, even today. Uh, all through my life, if somebody else has told me something rather than me having to read it, yeah. it always sort of works a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, at the age of 14, um, I was uh, obviously taking notice of what was going on around us. The Russians, uh, obviously, in 1957, had orbited the first Sputnik, uh, been anticipating people going to the moon for a long, long time. Um, but in 1960, that was when I really became acknowledged as an engineer in my own right, because on my 16th birthday, <coughs> excuse me, I, uh, I walked into the local police station in Ripley in Derbyshire and said, I built a rocket, I want permission to launch it. How do I go about it? <laughs> now, of course, out in the backwoods of Derbyshire, going and asking the sort of local police how you go about launching a rocket um, was uh, an interesting experience. How, how big was this rocket then? Was it... Uh, it was about four foot long, um, weighed about 20 pounds, and it was going to go for a 10-mile altitude. Wow. And uh, I... <laughs> I'd got all of the oxidizer, that was an ammonium nitrate oxidizer, and that sat in my airing cupboard uh, for many, many years because what I hadn't realized that I'd embarked on was a, a major row with the government. And it seems that I've been in that position the rest of my life. So uh, at 16 was a good start. <laughs> 16 on a 10 mile rocket, that, that's pretty <clears throat> So, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the. Uh, it's obviously, uh, it's a very small town and. One of the uh, barbers there, a guy named Ivan Blant, always used to talk to me about my rocket interests. He'd been a, a long-term friend of my brother who was much older than me. And uh, Ivan, being a barber, um, of course, when anybody else of interest came in, he'd say whatever interesting had passed by him. And uh, via him plus the local police, it reached the uh, uh, Derby Evening Telegraph. 
And then next thing I found, I'd got uh, reporters sort of standing on my doorstep wanting to talk to me, uh, contacting the grammar school and wanting to talk to them. And uh, so all of a sudden I became the centre of attention through the latter half of uh, 1960. And when the government came back and said, you can't launch it, that produced a bit of a furor in the papers, which you can still look up. I've got copies of most of that. Um, But the government eventually sort of said, you're not launching it. Um, You've got to stand down. So, uh, But in the course of all of that, what actually happens is I met a lot of other people interested uh, in the uh, Midlands and in North London. Um, a guy named uh, Rod Griffiths uh, with the North London Rocket Group and uh, a guy named Ray Cox with the Midland Amateur Rocket Society. And we clubbed together, uh, quite a big group of us, but we, we remained the three individual rocket groups. But we called ourselves Sizem, which was the Society for the Illegal Elevation of Scrap Metal. Of course, <laughs> in those days, it was all sort of under the uh, 1875, I think it is, Explosives Act. Um, we, were, we were all operating legally, but... For quite a long time, for about three years, we uh, went away. We all built our rockets. We then met mostly in Derbyshire. Uh, of course, I've got a lot of open space up there, and uh, we'd spend we'd, we'd meet up Friday nights. We'd spend uh, Saturday getting everything ready, and then Sunday morning it would be out up onto the uh, Derbyshire moors, um, let everything go or not go as the case may be. Um, and that was all good stuff, and taught me a lot about uh, the difference between doing a rocket on paper and doing a rocket in reality. Yeah. But we did manage to uh, get a rocket. The maximum we reached was about two miles, and that was on the Dunstable Downs. Did uh, you ever have any kind of science payload, or was it just purely about the rocket? No, I mean, we tried to put uh, radio trackers in them. To, these rockets were very, very high acceleration, because although the propellant we'd finally dropped back to, which was zinc powder and sulfur... Um, the combustion rate was very, very, very rapid. So typical burning time would be a half a second, something like that. And in that time, it would go from sort of nothing up to about Mach 1.2, and, uh, I mean, like, a, like a bullet, essentially. Well, you, you could hear sort of uh, a double... As the first part of it was the engine lighting. The second bit was it going through the sound barrier at something like 100 feet off the ground. And uh, when you videoed these things, I mean, uh, it, the, the rocket is there and the next thing it's just gone and there's a cloud of smoke and, uh, you know, the, the rocket is way up above you. And then a few seconds later, you'd hear it starting to come down. You couldn't see the damn thing, <laughs> uh, but you could hear it organ piping because these were long, empty chambers. And as the air flowed past it, it excited internal uh, oscillations. So you could hear this thing... Oh. way up in the air and you knew it, you were trying to make yourself as thin a target as possible uh, so yeah just but, playing playing the odds really. yeah <laughs> we never hurt anybody i mean we did operate pretty safely but during that time altogether we uh, uh, both launched and tested about 54 rocket motors and about a third of those actually operated as they should have done but uh, obviously in the process we learned an awful lot for me I learned an awful lot about how to do the analysis and calculations, structural analysis and that sort of thing, Um, and quite a lot about uh, thermodynamics of combustion. So what ruined it all is that uh, 
when I got to 19, I had to go to work. I had to leave grammar school. And uh, I'd originally been set up to go to Imperial College to do uh, uh, applied maths. I'd got some ideas about uh, generating non-Newtonian forces. So in general relativity, there are some solutions which uh, suggest that uh, you can create forces which don't have an equal and opposite reaction. Um, And so that's what I was hoping to do. However, uh, of course, the good old hormones kicked in and women entered my life and uh, uh, ideas of going off to university went downhill for a while. So what I did do was join Rolls-Royce as an engineering apprentice and I did my degree uh, part-time with Rolls-Royce. And uh, so I finished up uh, then in the rocket department, Um, terminated my apprenticeship early and uh, I went to work as a performance engineer under a a very uh, stimulating guy named Viv Wallace. But uh, over the rocket department overall, of course, was the really uh, stimulating and exciting guy, Val Cleaver. Mm-hmm. And uh, Val and myself became sort of very good friends very quickly. Earlier, when I was uh, 18, he'd actually organised a trip to Spade Adam for me. And two years even before that, during this period in 1960, um, he'd arranged for Steve Bragg to go through the design of Poltergeist and make a pronouncement over whether I'd done all the sums and everything right. And I've got a letter that I treasure from Steve Bragg saying, it all looks fine, but it's still damn dangerous. Don't do it. <laughs> and, uh, so by the time we got to, where would we be? Uh, 1965, uh, I guess. Uh, although I was still an apprentice at that point, I was working pretty much full time in the rocket department. And uh, in those days, we used to have computresses who were young ladies that drove the mechanical frightened calculators and uh, we had to have a, a separate glass box that these worked in because they made so much noise that they disturbed the design office. Mm. But we were supporting the design office. But what I found is that I could come up with all sorts of little mathematical tricks that would speed up and help them to do the calculations on the calculators. And because uh, the, the project that I became absorbed into was the RZ20 hydrogen oxygen engine uh, program. That was really exciting because obviously uh, back in the mid to late 60s, hydrogen oxygen was the forefront uh, propulsion technology. And there I was, um, deputy essentially to a team actually doing that. And in uh, uh, 1968, we tested the uh, combustion chamber that we'd been building. It was a joint project with the French. So the, the French got the turbo pump side of it and we got the combustion system. But unfortunately, politics being what it is in this country, that that nice Mr. Wedgwood Ben by then had uh, sort of cancelled our involvement with Eldo, as it was at that time. And uh, all of the work on the hydrogen programme stopped. Um, But what that did do, which uh, in retrospect was probably better than continuing with the uh, programme, was the French and the Germans who were going to pick up the engine um, came to Rolls-Royce and asked Rolls-Royce to be honest broker between two very different designs that they were doing. And uh, it was that that first brought me into contact with the uh, extraordinary advanced high-pressure uh, pre-burner cycle technology that the Germans were doing. 
Now, in those days, of course, we didn't know that it was all old hat to the Russians. They'd been doing it a long time, and there was a lot of stuff uh, on the theory of it. But uh, it brought me into contact with a German engineer, Michael Kaufman. And uh, what I think, well, I learned a lot from Michael Kaufman in terms of how to analyse the engines and so on. But uh, the thing that really I carried away from Michael Kaufman is that do the analysis, don't be frightened of the numbers. If the numbers say it's possible and you've done it, then it's possible. So in those days, you used to be frightened because, you know, the, the standard combustion chamber pressures were sort of like 700 PSI, good old-fashioned units, sort of, uh, what would that be, about uh, 40, uh, 40 bar, I guess, uh, 40 or 50 bar, whereas the Germans were already pushing 100 bar in their combustion systems. And, of course, uh, they showed the Americans what they'd done, and Rocketdyne and various other companies picked that up and uh, incorporated it into what became the shuttle main engine, mm. operating at over 200 bar. And this is where this message from Kaufman came home, really. If the numbers say it's possible, it's possible. Don't be frightened because mm. nobody's ever been above 300 PSI before. You know, All this other pressure is there to be had. <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody's got to go there. Yeah. And uh, that, was, that was a real good message to pick up from all of that. Anyway, the rocket department sort of lumbered on supplying blue streaks up until 1972. And uh, I was involved. My, my bread and butter daytime job was checking out engines for blue streaks. So all the test work was done at Spade Adam. We had a performance office at Spade Adam that did the preliminary test work. And then it was up to me and my small team that I'd then accumulated um, to go into some depth in the analysis to make sure that the engines uh, were behaving themselves. But also, uh, even on the Blue Streak engines, which were uh, pretty ancient by then, they'd been around 10, 15 years historically back in America, um, there were still a number of things that we didn't understand. And indeed, there are still a few mysteries even today hanging over the performance of Blue Street, which every now and then I sort of go back and visit <laughs> um, because I hate uh, sort of little unanswered questions. Yeah. But, uh, one of the interesting things on Blue Streak, it suffers something called pogo vibration, um, which is a coupling between the uh, cavitation pressure at the pump inlet and the acceleration of the vehicle. And, of course, a, a rocket is very, very thin structure, stressed to the limit, and so it's very flexible in the longitudinal direction. And so what happens is you get a, a slight increase in thrust. Um, that takes time to transmit itself down the structure before it gets fed back as an input on the pressure at the LOX pump. And uh, so the vehicle then goes into steady state oscillations. Um, we didn't see it on the early blue streaks, but once we got to uh, uh, the uh, seventh and uh, eighth flight, then where the, the upper stages were now fueled and heavy, we then saw it start to come in, and the heavier the vehicle got, the more we saw it, and mm. uh, we would have had to do something about it. We'd already started to do tests to control the pogo vibration, um, but uh, because of the programme coming to a hen an end, we never, we never what, finished that. What sort of year was that? Around about? So we're talking about around about 1970, and obviously... Uh, one of the problems that Rolls-Royce had is that the company went into bankruptcy in 71 uh, over uh, engineering problems with the RB211 uh, carbon fan. 
where the Rolls-Royce had uh, rather pushed the technology ahead of where the experimental program was um, and had committed to the uh, uh, carbon, uh, fiber, carbon plastic fan, uh, which proved to have very poor ductility and uh, very poor fracture toughness. So uh, Rolls-Royce got itself into trouble on that score. But uh, there were also, the rocket department by then had been moved from Derby, it had been merged with the Bristol uh, group back in 67. And uh, we were all on the site at Anstey, and uh, Anstey just outside Coventry. Industrial strife in Coventry was legendary in those days. And uh, as a consequence, uh, there was a period when there was a three-month strike. I wasn't a member of the union. Rolls-Royce withheld my card, so I had no source of pay, so I got pushed into the union at, at that point in time. We'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> and uh, I'd got three months essentially at home. So I teamed up with another guy named Bob Anderson. And uh, Val Cleaver, of course, had always been uh, uh, known for his early pioneering work in nuclear rocket propulsion. And so I embarked on the design of a nuclear engine uh, with uh, Bob Anderson. And we spent th three months sort of sorting that out. And we went round to uh, see Val Cleaver at the hotel he was staying at uh, in Kenilworth and uh, run it by him. And so it was a three good, a good paid three months project study. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we then published that as a report. And in fact, for a short while, the company was trying to push the possibility of a nuclear space tug to complement the shuttle in the earlier 1970s. So um, one of these great international things that never came to anything, that the Americans were going to build the shuttle and they were appealing to Europe to provide the uh, in-space part of the infrastructure, yeah. the space tug. And uh, at that time, it was all very exciting. This was going to be a real transportation system. Obviously, the moon landings were still going on at that time. Um, but what people were doing were looking further ahead for when we had a real transportation system, not, not the one-off sort of Roman candle missions that uh, were then currently taking place. And so I got uh, involved in a lot of reusable launch vehicle studies. Um, and thanks to Val Cleaver, he, he pushed a lot of those to his mates in America. So had a lot of feedback on some of that stuff from the uh, Lewis uh, Research Centre. Um, there was uh, <coughs> uh, also a guy named Bob Salkeld uh, came to the fore at that time. What, he was an American. What Bob had identified is that um, because liquid hydrogen is such a low density, then you can actually maximise the payload of a vehicle going into orbit if you burn kerosene and oxygen first and then hydrogen and oxygen second. And uh, you then optimise that for the structural fraction. And so although the weight of the vehicle increases at liftoff because of the density of kerosene, mm. um, the actual weight of the bit that finally goes into orbit can be maximised. And uh, so we looked at that and after some meetings with Val, uh, we thought, well, could we get a single engine to burn both hydrogen and kerosene with oxygen? And so we did some preliminary studies on that. Val talked to Rudy Beichel at Aerojet about that. Rudy Beichel, of course, had got a massive teams at his disposal, whereas Val had only got me. <laughs> and uh, so Rudy Beichel was very quickly into print 
with a, a bi-propellant engine, a bi-fuel engine, um, based on some of the principles we thought about, but Aerojet took that a step further. And then to cap it all, the Russians built the 700 series engines first. So of everybody, it was the Russians that actually went away <laughs> and built the first sort of uh, bi-fuel engines. So that was also sort of quite interesting, but it was the nuclear stuff that uh, I found uh, pretty exciting because if we were going to go out and conquer the universe, uh, starting with the solar system, um, we, uh, we had to have some way of doing it. And I came up with... <clears throat> Well, ultimately, I didn't realise at the time would form the engines for Hotel and Skylon. Mm. Um, but this was a nuclear engine at the time. So you've got a vehicle and it's got a nuclear reactor on it, which is hot. And you've got liquid hydrogen on it, which is cold. And the engines that uh, uh, Val Cleaver and Les Shepard had pioneered back at the back end of the 40s, 1948, obviously the seminal papers in the uh, Journal of British Interplanetary Society on that, um, that was just taking the cold stuff, pushing it through the hot thing, and it all came out hot and um, produced thrust. But um, thermodynamics has been something that has uh, always been, you know, way back into the mists of time, a strong fascination to me. And the second law of thermodynamics actually says you can do something better than that. Because if you've got somewhere that's hot and somewhere that's cold, in the process of rejecting hot to the cold, you can actually convert some of that into meaningful work in between. And so what I devised was the first of the cycles which uh, um, heated the hydrogen with the waste heat from the energy conversion system. So you're still finished up with hot hydrogen, but now you've also got a lot of electrical energy mm. that you could use to heat it further. And you can do a, a rather simple-minded calculation just based on conservation of entropy. Uh, and energy uh, in, uh, in the process. And uh, it turns out that you can heat the hydrogen uh, to probably double the reactor temperature if you wanted to. Now, when you put some efficiency in it, as, as with a lot of stuff in the second law of thermodynamic, it very quickly clobbers your first ambitions. But nonetheless, it still leaves the possibility of having a a nuclear thermal engine, I mean, Nerva and uh, the Rover reactors, they all produced exhaust velocities of sort of uh, nine kilometers to 10 kilometers a second. Whereas uh, you can get uh, exhaust velocities up to 12 kilometers a second or even higher. Now that might not sound like very much, but because of the logarithmic nature of the rocket equation, mm. that makes a huge difference. So it turns out that uh, I'd stumbled onto a, a route whereby uh, we could actually improve nuclear propulsion quite a lot with very high thrust nuclear engines. But of course there's a stigma of launching nuclear rockets from the earth. Um, even though in some of the, I, I still continue to tinker with designs of this sort, um, the hydrogen doesn't pass through the core in any of the designs I look at. So the exhaust is not radioactive. Mm. Um, but of course, there's a lot of neutron uh, radiation gets out of the engine. But the atmosphere absorbs all that you know, quite uh, rapidly. The real problem is if you get a failure during mm. launch, and then you make a bit of a mess. Now, it depends on what you think is uh, scary. But the sort of fallout that you'd get would be equivalent to a sort of eight kiloton bomb, smaller than the bomb that was dropped, bombs that were dropped on Japan during the Second World War. 
and provided that was from a known launch site, then I do believe that you could have downrange safety, etc. But nonetheless, there's a huge uh, stigma associated with trying to operate a nuclear rocket from the ground. Mm. Whether that will ever go away, I don't know. But uh, well, I, I mean, is that something that uh, manufacturing say? That kind of vehicle in, in say in space or or on a or on the moon, for example, would that take away that? Or, it or? would. Um, so I think that people today do uh, still look wistfully at the idea of having nuclear rockets operating in space. But before you can do that, and, and to do exactly as you've just said, we need a credible operational space transport infrastructure. And so um, back to chemistry, essentially. Um, Obviously, the the rocket business in the UK dried up in 72. Uh, The last blue streak flew at that date, unfortunately. Uh, It was also a failure, uh, F-11. We'd had a whole series of failures. I mean, we we always say that blue streak never failed, and, and, and the reality is that it didn't. But we had failures from German stages, French stages, uh, the Italian shroud, and then uh, finally the uh, Dutch uh, telemetry system corrupted the guidance system and caused Blue Streak uh, to do a yaw, which broke the vehicle in half. Unfortunately, uh, Blue Streak was then getting a bit small, Uh, larger vehicles were needed. The Europeans, particularly the French, had been pushing for a long time for a much bigger vehicle. I know that there is a, such as there is left of the Blue Street community these days, you've got to bear in mind now, I was a young chap in that and I'm 74 now. So uh, the uh, Blue Street community always felt we was robbed. But the reality is, if you look at it, I mean, uh, the uh, Eldo 2 vehicle could put about 360 kilograms into a geostationary orbit. I mean, we look at 10, 20 times that Mm. today. And uh, thanks to the French uh, and the Germans, um, they developed the Ariane series of rockets one through four, which was commercially very successful. Um, Unfortunately, politics came into it when uh, Ariane 5 uh, was developed, but nonetheless, Ariane 5 has been an outstanding engineering uh, success, has been commercially very successful. And uh, the reliability of it is second to nobody's. So it's uh, it's been very good for the Europeans. But of course, the British pulled out of all of that. In '72, the governments of the day decided that's it. Uh, all that we're going to do is develop the applications and let other people uh, do the launcher part. From somebody in government, I suppose that might seem like a good idea. But what they had missed the point of is that our aerospace industry was actually very good. And uh, what we did, we abdicated from a a lead position and allowed the rest of European industry to overtake it. And what we didn't let the Europeans do, we let the Americans do. So, I mean, our one triumph uh, was uh, Concorde. And uh, that, that, even today, there isn't a replacement for it. Technologically, it was good. But what, again, we always fail to do in this country is having... If we had regarded Concorde as a demonstrator, recognised its limitations and then built on that uh, to go on to a new generation of vehicle, I believe that we would have still have had supersonic, if not hypersonic travel now for several decades. 
<clears throat> and we would we would still be ahead of the world in all of that. But various governments, and uh, I uh, I have no love for Margaret Thatcher or their policies, uh, but I won't say more than that. And uh, <clears throat> she particularly wanted to see all this uh, handed over to other people, but she did support what came later, which was HOTEL. And for a while there, um, there was strong support from the Thatcher government, in particularly in the form of uh, Sir Geoffrey Patty. So where did HOTEL come from? Well, after 72, uh, I re- well, even by 1970, I realised I'd got to uh, leave the business. I could see that Blue Street wasn't going to make it. And so in 71, I went to work for British Aircraft Corporation on classified weapons work. I was the only propulsion engineer in British Aircraft Corporation at that time. And um, what they allowed me to do, because I was going to be shut up in closed, uh, uh, behind closed doors and uh, I couldn't talk to my family or anybody about what I was doing, and I've always liked to discuss space and things like that, um, I negotiated that half a day a week I could have their computer. Mm. Uh, Friday afternoons I could do whatever I wanted on their computer, which if you remember sort of back to the sort of early 70s, getting access to my own IBM computer all to myself to do what I wanted with uh, was a major breakthrough. I also managed to uh, uh, get from Rolls-Royce a copy of the uh, uh, combustion uh, equilibrium combustion program. Yeah. So I was able to run all kinds of propellant combinations, all kinds of engine configurations. And so I had four years of bliss whilst uh, I investigated just about every conceivable uh, rocket engine case you could imagine. Um, but there was a sad conclusion to that in that um, there was no way of taking a rocket uh, to orbit single stage. Um, It was always going to have to be some sort of multi-stage operation. Uh, The Americans had probably got it quite right with a two-stage aeroplane in which the first stage peeled off and flew back and then the second stage went to orbit, did its job and then flew back. And of course what the Americans uh, did ultimately was throw the first stage away and put two solid boosters on it um, to get the development costs down. when I, I can't remember the figure that went to Congress, it was going to be 10 or $12 billion, and they threw it out and said they got to halve the development cost, and so they got the space shuttle, um, which certainly met the development cost, but of course never managed to achieve anything like reasonable mm. operation costs. Every single flight of the space shuttle was 600 to $700 million uh, recurring cost. Um, I mean, that's that's a staggering number. (laughs) And uh, originally, the figures that were hoped for were sort of like 1% of that. So uh, the space shuttle as such was was never really a success. But I did get an opportunity to uh, not only monitor what other people around me were doing, but also to uh, do an awful lot of design studies myself. And it was clear that the goal that I was been striving for, even at Rolls-Royce, was single stage to orbit. That wouldn't be achievable with rocket. But uh, when I went to British Aircraft Corporation, um, I needed something to uh, interact with the outside universe on. And uh, so Project Daedalus was born. Now, with Daedalus, I decided that uh, what we should do is make a real step forward. 
Len Carter, who was the secretary at the BIS at the time, was very sort of excited about that. And Len Carter introduced me to Tony Martin, and Tony Martin and I hit it off. Uh, Tony's a physicist, I'm an engineer. Um, we found that our respective skills fitted very, very well together. And so from 73 to 78, Project Daedalus uh, rolled, and uh, we really pushed the technology on that and reached the conclusion that interstellar flight, at least for the nearest stars, is possible. Um, based on what we learned on that, various other things uh, grew out of the society, like discussion of Fermi paradox and, uh, and that sort of thing. So all of that was all exciting stuff, but... Uh, by 1982, Tony and uh, myself were uh, working on electric propulsion. Uh, they, uh, we'd extended the uh, Daedalus stuff into looking at propelling world ships. Mm. And uh, so all of that, and we'd pulled together a, a really great team all around us, which you know, still echoes on in the uh, society today. Um, but in 82, I realised that, we, we were looking at things to get us to the stars and we still couldn't get off the planet. So, uh, I mean, there's this problem called von Perke's paradox, which is it's easier to get anywhere else in the universe than to get into orbit. Yeah, frustrating, huh? Sorry? <laughs> it's very frustrating. It, well, it's very frustrating. <laughs> I went back and revisited all the work I'd done at British Aircraft Corporation and, of course, the nuclear propulsion work at Rolls-Royce uh, to see whether there was a route forward. And I realised that if you replace the nuclear reactor in this cycle, which uh, used an intermediate uh, thermodynamic cycle to produce work in the process of heating the hydrogen, if you replace the reactor by air at very high temperatures, so I started off looking at speeds of Mach 7, but that had to creep down eventually to about Mach 5 because of uh, material limits and so on. Um, but HOTEL, the, the, the engines for HOTEL were born out of that. And it was the thermodynamics that came from the uh, um, nuclear engine that made the HOTEL cycle work. But when I say the thermodynamics, it turns out that there are immense uh, variations and subtleties on the thermodynamics, especially when you realise you've got real materials around you you've got to work with. So hydrogen is a superb material, but uh, down at very low temperatures, which is where you want to be, its specific heat varies very considerably. So that screws up sort of the ideal cycles that you'd like to put together, mm. and you have to start to accommodate uh, real fluids. But anyway, the first of the engines that sort of came out of that, I'd, uh, I'd sketched up. I got hold of John Scott Scott, who was a guy I'd worked with at Rolls-Royce, and... Uh, uh, Bob Parkinson, who I'd worked with all through my career up to that point. Uh, we had a meeting uh, in my office at Cullum and uh, um, basically sort of went, you know, I've been working on an engine. I think there's sort of merit in it. Uh, ex Scotty was the turbo machinery man, so we talked about the turbo machinery. And Bob Parkinson said, well, I've been looking at the other end of the problem. I've been having a look at the issues of getting a single-stage vehicle into orbit and back, not looking at the propulsion, but more the recovery and sort of general structure side of it. And all of a sudden, we'd got an interested group. Uh, so British Aerospace um, had obviously uh, uh, pulled in 
a lot of the old companies, British Aircraft Corporation, had been swallowed into British Aerospace. And uh, the Concorde team was now available. And so by sort of 1983, 84, we'd got a little group of people sort of ticking away there, looking at what a single stage to orbit vehicle based on an engine which could accelerate using the atmosphere up to Mach 5, but then with minor changes of configuration, um, go up to be a rocket engine to take the vehicle to orbit and putting in where the materials technology was going and so on. All of that looked very, very good. And so we started a long and tedious uh, process of trying to get interest out of the Ministry of Defence, interest out of the... Uh, we didn't have a space agency of those days. It had become the British National Space Centre. Uh, trying to get uh, interest out of them. And we were making very, very little progress. And then all of a sudden, uh, Sir Geoffrey Patty sort of emerged on the scene. Probably uh, one of the most intelligent people we've ever had in charge of, uh, well, I can't even remember what, I think it was called Department of Technology, uh, Department for Industry and Technology in those days, DTI. Um, and... Uh, he could see the merits of it. And so in 87, he found sort of a couple of million pounds to put in, which in 87 values was quite a substantial amount, provided that Rolls-Royce and British Aerospace would match it, which they did. Um, <clears throat> so from 87 up to 89, we had a two-year well-funded programme, investigated uh, many of the problems with the single stage to orbit vehicle. And again, the, the straight, if you model it as a point mass, then it worked fine. But once you put the aerodynamics in and the annoying tendency of the vehicle to pitch up at high Mach numbers, so it turned out that this vehicle, which was completely trimmed at takeoff, by the time we got to Mach 5, there was a 2,000 ton metre moment trying to pitch the vehicle up. And... Uh, one of the guys, Steve Furness, had been telling us for a long time we'd never trim it, and we all ignored him, of course. And uh, um, so we got to 1989, Kenneth Clark uh, under... Well, Margaret Thatcher put Kenneth Clark in charge of space. Um, unfortunately, most things that Kenneth Clark's been in charge of, except the Treasury, have been a disaster. And uh, his... Uh, his view on anything was, uh, you know, what does this do for Kenneth Clark's career? And I, I don't mind saying this on a podcast. It's always, you know, the first, second and third most important things to Kenneth Clark have been Kenneth Clark. And uh, so he found it easier to chop it rather than let it go ahead. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I did have some limited uh, letter exchange with him, but... Uh, clearly of limited intellects, but uh, I, you probably want to edit that out. <laughs> I don't mind if you don't. <laughs> but, um, we, we love stuff like the, that. <laughs> the, the consequence of uh, that was that the Hotel project came to a, a lingering death. Uh, hat off to British Aerospace, they tried to pull the Russians in. Uh, we'd become chummy with the Russians by the early 1990s, and they'd got uh, the Antonov 224, which was able to lift a vehicle to high altitude. Uh, one thing about Bob Parkinson is that, you know, no matter how much technology you take off him, he still manages to sort of bolt what he's got left <laughs> together to achieve some sort of spectacular end. And so 
something called Interim Hotel came out of the British Aerospace work. Um, but uh, by then, um, I'd, because uh, uh, I was already working at the Atomic Energy Authority at that time, I need to come back to that probably and say where that happened. Um, but I then sort of uh, went back to the Atomic Energy Authority for a while, but I couldn't let everything rest. So John Scott Scott and uh, a colleague from Rolls-Royce, Richard Varvel, who had arrived on the scene and myself, we formed Reaction Engines in 1989 with no other objective at that time than trying to save all the technology that we had put, that Rolls-Royce, British Aerospace and uh, myself had all put together. And so it was a rescue manoeuvre at uh, that point in time. Let me just backtrack briefly to, uh, um, at the end of the four years with uh, the British Aircraft Corporation, I was starting to go a little bit funny. Uh, some people would say, how can you tell? But uh, <laughs> um, my wife had started to uh, complain to my friends that uh, uh, I seemed to be changing and so on. And I realized that it was the intense security surrounding the work that I was doing that was uh, getting to me. And so, uh, Tony Martin, who I'd worked with on Daedalus, obviously, was already at the Cullum Laboratory working on uh, electric propulsion. He'd been there two years. He alerted me to a, a job going in the engineering design division, uh, which I took. And so from uh, uh, 1976 onwards, uh, I was actually working on nuclear fusion uh, machines uh, for the Atomic Energy Authority at Cullum, eventually into JET, and then from uh, 1980 onwards uh, on a machine called RFX, a reverse field pinch experiment. But all of this gave me a lot of background in the design of uh, uh, electromagnetic field coils, a um, lot of understanding of the plasma physics of these machines and so on, uh, which built on everything we'd put into Daedalus. So I'd already got a career sort of with the Atomic Energy Authority but it was very hard for me to actually uh, stop when Hotel died. But what I am going to do there is pause just for a second while I have a drink. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so there we go. Um, uh, that Simply uh, mind blowing. Uh, yeah. I can't wait for part two. Uh, that seemed like a good place to stop where he <laughs> couldn't carry on any, mon- I think any so. longer. I mean, Alan Bond really is. I, I, I would go as far as saying he is the absolutely archetypal uh, rocket engineer. I absolutely concur. Yeah, he's an absolute legend. Thank you, Alan. More to come. More to Brilliant come. Stuff. So just to finish this programme on a bit of a downer. Oh. <laughs> Matt, it's Friday. Why are you doing this to us? You're going to send us away with a, a hop in our step. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask... And spunk in our... Jamie, are we alone in the universe? Well, what's your definition of alone? Well, are there other intelligent beings out there on different planets and stuff? My, if I if I was a betting man, I would say that there isn't. I think that we will, in the next 50 years, find life, but not as we know it, Matthew. Ooh. So, what's your take? Well, my take is based on the scientific evidence that's out there. And luckily for me, physicist Anders Sandberg, Eric Drexler and Toby Ord, uh, all of the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University, have written a paper that they've just lodged on ARCSIX. It's, yes, it's yet to be peer-reviewed, but they've combined the Fermi paradox and the Drake equation and applied lots of mathematical rigour to it 
And unfortunately, the conclusion is we're probably alone in the universe. Now, just stop and think how incredibly ridiculous that statement is. It's it's frightening. (laughs) It's it's just wow, ridiculous. Do you think it's frightening, Matt? I think it just makes us lucky. Makes me makes me happy that (laughs) that we've uh, that we've we live in a time that we happen in this in all these billions of years, Matt. That Mm. we happen to live in a time where we can listen to podcasts. We can listen to Alan Bond. Oh, I mean, that just and that I can go and play Street Fighter Two. That just blows my mind. Yeah, uh, the 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 fact that we can control tiny electrons going around little processors and and that we can do all these rockets with yeah with these crazy thermodynamic properties. And we it's might, a hell of a ride, Matt. It's and a we, hell of and a we ride. might be the only thing that in the universe that's done that. So yeah, that they this is what they said that there is a substantial probability that we are alone. And they quoted US astronomer Jill Tarter, who described the Drake equation as a wonderful way to organise our ignorance. <laughs> and just like point, <laughs> I love that. pointing out that the margins of error are so massive in multiple orders of magnitude, it doesn't really tell us anything. So they've really tried their best. Uh, they've also quoted US astronomer Stephen J. Dick, who says, perhaps never in the history of science has an equation been devised yield- yielding values differing by eight orders of magnitude. Each scientist seems to bring his own prejudices and assumptions to the problem. So, yeah, it's the Drake equation. Maybe doesn't tell us much apart from the scientists that are trying to work out the numbers in the Drake equation. Uh, Drake equation. So mm. so when we take account of realistic uncertainty in replacing point estimates by probability distributions that reflect current scientific understanding, we find no reason to be highly confident that the galaxy or even the observable universe contains other civilizations. <sighs> well, I I concur and I it's that thing Matt, isn't it? I mean who knows? But I think we're just very, very lucky. Mm. So I see it as a silver lining, Matt. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not scared. Uh, there's also another guy called Tegmark who assumed that there's no reason two intel- intelligent civilizations civilization should be any particularly distance from each other, and therefore, if you've got something like the Milky Way, which is a minuscule fraction of the observable universe, which is itself is only a tiny part of the actual universe mm. it's unlikely that two intelligent civilizations would arise in the same observable universe thus exactly. to all intents and purposes we are very probably alone so lots of lots of lines of thought there going towards i'd like to <laughs> discuss this more matt i think we should try and interview uh one of the one of the physicists yeah, we, we should we should get two on. We should Anders, we should, Eric, or Toby. We let's sh- chat. Yeah, let's chat. We should we should get on someone that <clears throat> believes that we aren't alone, and someone believes that we are, and see what the see what the intellectual argument is between the well, two. Well, let's see if we can make that happen. That would be wicked. That would be, Jamie. Yes, you've been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the Ace back into space. 
Have I? <laughs> you you most. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I tell you what, Matt. I enjoyed it so much that I'm going to go to iTunes, leave a leave a lovely review. Mm-hmm. Might, might might even chuck a five star up there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and subscribe to the podcast. More importantly, so I get notified when a new one comes out because I ain't missing this. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to go to Twitter, hit follow. Instagram, hit follow. Facebook, hit follow. Mm-hmm. But Matt, more importantly, I enjoyed it so much. I'm going to go over to Patreon mm-hmm. and donate a little something each month so that it helps Matt and Jamie. That's what I'm going to go and do. Uh, and you know what? We've had some. We've, we we did get a, a load of new patrons this this uh, month. Thank you very did much. We? Yeah, we, we thank we, you so much, guys. We, we really did. Thank you very very much, everyone that's out there. We will read out your names on the first podcast of the month. That's that's when we're going to do it because. You're all legends, and it makes this show carry on. We've got some new Skylon level, and uh, yeah, I know. How cool is that? So uh, bri- really brilliant. Thank you very much for, for being part of the show. And your, your uh, contributions are unbelievably important. They've been paying for things like my yellow fever <laughs> vaccination yeah, yellow fever jab yeah, yellow fever jab and you'll see that that's going to be very very important next week so next week we have our david baker chat uh that's going to be really really interesting we've got some great stuff on that um the legend comes back and we've got some brilliant interviews coming up we've got the rest of the alan bond interview we've got uh an interview with roman Chaz of the mars that was great uh, yeah of mars 500 that's a really excellent interview. Um, really fascinating. I mean, what a, what an experience to have had. He actually was in it. Yeah, see, he was in it. Was in it. <laughs> in it to win it. So that's really good, and he's got some very cool stories uh, as part of that. So that's worth listening to. So we, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. I've, I, I definitely enjoyed the Alan Bond interview. So we'll see you. Me too. Can't wait for next week. We'll see you next week, Space right, Podcast. I'm off to play Street Fighter 2. Yoga Flame! <laughs> I'm off to go to work and hope that no one noticed that I was missing this morning. <laughs> God, you're boring. <laughs> bye, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye.